0: Good morning, good evening. Matthew Grant here. If you've just found us, well, please do stick around. We're delighted to have you. And if you like this, a lot more choice from our past episodes. Well, exciting news for us at Deck HQ this week, as Jack has finally figured out how to get into the statistics behind the podcast. And we are delighted to see that the majority of you that start listening make it all the way to the end. Well, this week, we've got the highlights from our recent evening event, talking about the tools that are now available to insurers to get a better understanding of how climate change is impacting floods and cyclones or hurricanes, and how insurers are using these tools. Now, this was recorded on the 1st of November in Codenode in London, with an audience of about 150 people, and we are very grateful to REASK for supporting the event. In addition to REASK, you'll be hearing from Flood Modellers Fathom, Investment Fund Securus, Oasis loss Modelling, Brit, and more. Now, it's a bit longer than our usual episode and we're going to add the sections, speaker names and times to the episode notes to help you so you can jump ahead if you want to. And we've had another 10 companies join us in the last few weeks as members from insurance, broking and technology companies. Now, if you haven't discovered what we're up to at Instec, then you can find everything we're doing at www.instec.com. And with so much going on, we are building out our account management team. So if you are interested in joining us or know someone that might be, then please do contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.co. Jamie, Andy, delighted to have you on stage. What is it about the combination of different perils and the collaboration that... It makes
1: this particularly important for have as a theme tonight. We want the customers to be able to use these models, make the best decisions in a time that's changing continuously. Complexity is only going in one direction. That's not just climate change. And if you want to do that, you want to say, OK, let's take I'm going to say the best flood model. Let's take the best tropical cyclone model and let's put them together. That then leads to questions around, OK, how do we actually do that? How do you take a flood model that's modeled in a completely different way to tropical cyclone and combine it with an event-driven tropical cyclone model. So this partnership is leading us, allowing us to innovate and bring new solutions to the market, which is ultimately what we care about. How do you
0: think about the role of Riask in terms of the balance between, are you coming in to disrupt the view of risk? Do you believe that you know, what is there is not suitable? What's the balance between
1: you're looking to build around what people are already doing? I'm not sure if it's a disruption, it's maybe more of an evolution. And as you move through time, you get new information, technology improves. Thomas, I, and Nico started building models at RMS 10 years ago. When we, Wouldn't it be really cool if we had a globally correlated tropical cyclone event set? 10 years ago, couldn't do it. Technology wasn't there. But now we can think about a global view of risk, how we want to quantify risk, things like correlation, climate connected, having all these inputs to make decisions and have a risk quantification that, that allows you to do that. It's sort of where we're at in industry. I see it. Maybe not disruption, but just to change a little bit in the business model. You know, it's partnerships, it's working closely with clients, working closely with the market, have an open interaction. And and for those in the audience who might not be familiar with a globally
0: correlated cyclone model, can you just explain in a sort of layperson's language what that
1: means? It's one model for the world. Um, We don't treat regions independently. Uh, Climate is a global problem. You want to model the globe. You want to take the climate globally and you want to understand interactions on a global scale. And that's what we mean by a global model. Climate modelling for the world, let's say. Great, I, like that. I love that tagline, climate <laughs> modelling for the world. So, Andy, over
0: to you now. So, when you looked, or you and your colleagues looked at starting Fathom, flood modelling then was difficult. There's lots mm-hmm. of detail you need to understand to create flood model. It's a relatively new discipline. What do you think is it about the way you have and your colleagues have developed the flood models that has actually helped people to be able to adopt those in a a relatively quick time period. If you don't know, we we started the company actually back
2: when we were doing our PhDs, so this really was kind of new science, this idea of building flood models at global scales. The big differentiator is that word scale, and it's similar to what Jamie said. We were thinking about building flood models actually at global scales. How do we build models in the most data-poor areas in the world? So scale was a big differentiator for us. There's nobody else really doing that at the time. And there's been an amazing, actually, evolution in our ability to do that. But one of the other big things I'd say is transparency around the modeling. So we, we kind of act as a de facto research group in lots of ways, publishing papers all the time in the leading academic journals, giving transparency to end users, so allowing them to see how we build the models, where they work, where they fall over. I think that was a big differentiator as well. Another thing that's really important, I think, in terms of the success of the company, is people in this room actually having faith in what we were doing. And willing to kind of take a punt on some young researchers from Bristol trying to build models. So big thanks to those who are out there who did that. But ultimately building good models is why it works, right? I think we build good models that work and people like them.
0: So you tackled that first challenging problem, building a global flood model, which is like difficult. And then now, of course, we're all looking at what the impacts of climate change are going to be and how that's going to change scenarios and lots of other uncertainty out there. So what does that mean when you roll that into the existing model, which up until recently could have generally was backward looking, now you've got to start helping people with projections going forward. How do you start to allow for all of that and what you're providing? What we do at is we try and build
2: good physically based models. The starting point is building models that really understand the physics of flooding. And if you want to have a model that's predictive of the future, then you have to have a model that's physically based. So in terms of the actual philosophy of our models, actually not much has changed, really. They're already geared to consume things like climate information. And it's kind of nice for me, actually, to be building these kinds of models, because my PhD was focused on coupling climate models and flood models. So the philosophy of the models has really not changed. And actually, I think cat modelling seems to be getting a bad rep in the last few years, saying it's not fit for purpose when it comes to climate risk, and I just think that's kind of nonsense. If you're building good physically-based CAP models, things that understand perils well, there's already epistemic uncertainty in all the different stages of a CAP model. There's just more uncertainty now in the climate part. It's just an additional uncertainty component that we have to think
0: of. I'm going to come back to your question on uncertainty, but first of all, just for anybody in the audience or on stage who may not understand what the word epistemic means, can you just... uh... Enlighten us. Uh, it,
2: it means uncertainty because you don't know enough, essentially. We don't have an, enough detailed information, measurements. The climate models themselves don't have enough information in them, so there's definitely epistemic. Uncertainty. We
0: kind of don't know what we don't know, or we know what we don't know, but we don't know enough. But anyway, we know where we're going. Okay, enough of that. Epistemic. Uh, there'll be a test later on on that one. Uh, you mentioned uncertainty in there, so hard enough looking backwards to model when you've got data and experience. How do you help people make decisions when you've got massive uncertainty about what's going to happen going forward? How can they actually possibly use that? And particularly when you're informing senior management about decisions coming out from analytical tools.
2: With transparency, I think. You just have to be honest about the uncertainties. When it comes to climate risk modelling and thinking about how flood will change in the future, actually the uncertainties can become huge. The climate models themselves don't represent lots of the processes that we care about as flood modellers. And you see huge divergence in the future in some of them because of things like circulation patterns. Some of them say there'll be more La Nina, some less. So you end up with very, very large uncertainty. In terms of how we deal with that with our clients, we just have to inform them why that exists. Uh, in terms of making decisions on that, it can be very difficult for sure. But it's better, to, I think, to make an informed decision rather than one based on unrealistic deterministic results.
0: Okay, so visibility and transparency. And then we talked about collaboration with Jamie. Your collaboration goes beyond Companies like Rias, but you're also collaborating with your partners. Can you give an example of where that's
2: happening? We build things off-shelf, so we have models that you could just consume as, as, I guess, pre-baked models and data. We also build models with clients, so we, we work with partners to build models in-house, and a really nice example of that is uh, AXA. So we're just completing AXA's European flood model, and Fathom has essentially built the, the hazard part of that, the event set. But AXA themselves want to take control of things like vulnerability, the financial models, And it's a model truly built together. And they understand, and they actually provided the weather generator as well, interestingly. But it's fantastic because they have absolute understanding of every component of that model. They understand how it works start to finish. And I think that kind of allows them to differentiate themselves in the market. They have a completely alternate view.
0: So I'm not asking you to kind of give numbers, but how should people think about if they want to work with Reask in terms of how do they
1: create the case or what kind of expectation is there around how they're going to be able to pay for this? So I think as these new products come to market, it actually allows us as a startup to think about new pricing models. Where's the value in the product that we bring to the market? If over time it allows an underwriter to make a better decision, a better hedging decision, then there should be probably a value or cost associated with that benefit. But Ultimately, it probably goes back to this transparency thing and people can see that this thing works and they can test it. They can understand well, maybe it didn't work, but we understand why it didn't work. We trust it starts to bring value in decision making, and you should be able to quantify that.
0: We're going to be hearing more from Riask and Fathom later on, and of course, we've got some time downstairs afterwards. So, Jamie, Andy, thank you very much. Cool. Cheers. Thanks. 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 Okay, we're now going to hear from uh, somebody on the other side of the equation, David Vakarey from Brit. Come, please come and join me. Thank you very much. Cheers. Uh, so, David, you are. Head of Research and Development at BRIT for Catastrophes and Other Things. You, before we talk about how you're helping BRIT understand how to use tools and models and have their own view of risk, I discovered that actually you have a side project that I don't think anybody else has ever done this on stage here. And you run a tour company for Storm Chasers. What's that I, all about?
3: I do indeed. So I just kind of wanted to go and do something that had sort of a passion and interest. So. Back in 2010, I paid to go on a tour. Uh, I subsequently got hired for a few years by an American tour company, and then met a few people and then started doing our own tours. So start off with storm chasing. That sort of went into the Arizona monsoon, and sort of erupting volcanoes, Aurora, anything that sort of has like a natural context and we will kind of take people to. And that's recently expanded into quite a bit of documentary work. So there's a new series on Netflix called Earthstorm that came out last week. So we've got some footage in the storm chasing episode and the volcano episode as well. So it's always good to have a side hustle.
0: That sounds like more than a side hustle. That sounds like a full-time <laughs> job for most of us. But I mean, how much time does that take? Because you've got a day job, you're doing all this stuff. I do have a day
3: job, it takes a lot of time, and basically Mays don't exist for me in this country. I basically live in the States, sort of end of April, fly, come back in June, and it's very nice to my employer who, uh, who allowed me to take the time.
0: That sounds fascinating. <laughs> back to the day job. Yes. Uh, so which is still also very interesting, by the way. So your role is to, like a lot of, like almost every insurance company today writing catastrophe exposed property risk, using analytics either themselves or getting them from the brokers. But as we all know, in the changing world, it's not enough and the regulators don't like it anyway if you just say, here's a modeled output, but um, we're gonna go for it. So can you just explain a little bit about, in the short time you have, how do you do that? I mean, that's, there's so much you could do in there and it's a little bit back to my question before to Andy, like in a world of uncertainty, how do you take a modelled output and help Brit turn that into something they can make decisions around? Obviously, when I first
3: started, we had a view of risk from a vendor, and that was it, and that's all we were able to do. What you can't do, and you're right, saying you can't just press a button and go, this is the output. Think about Ian; that's just happened. Everyone's panicking about sort of the size of the loss. Everyone knows there's a missing piece, so the role is to basically fill in that gap and say this is our view this is what we think and you can do this now because we've got all of you know the extra information so inland flood from tropical cyclones wasn't there for a while so you have to adjust for that and do your own research obviously the vendors do catch up and obviously they're catching up quite quick
0: on the climate side but you're always trying to fill that gap and there's always going to be something so there's a lot going on there you still got to find that information you have to present it in a credible way internally presumably to people who are making some quite critical decisions about what they're reporting back to regulators, how they're defining reinsurance, how they're reporting to Lloyds, things like that. So how do you find those sources of data and how do you then validate them so that people have got confidence internally?
3: I think we're very lucky data is becoming more open and it's easy to get your hands on it. Take price of wood, for example, you know, that's gone through the roof due to the pandemic and people building houses, etc., etc. That's something we've had to factor in, like undervaluation on properties. On the facility space, people just put a sort of a list of properties in every year and the value doesn't change. But that's not true. That's something we need to take into account of. And the biggest trick with everything is to be transparent and make sure that the stakeholders, whether they're in your business or sort of the people who are doing business with you, they understand that uncertainty. And then obviously add climate on top and then things get quite interesting.
0: So as you think about climate, any sort of suggestions for people as they have to go and report back on, is it weather, is it climate, is it something else that's driving the change? There's a huge dichotomy in what we do. In
3: one hand, you know, we're all scientists and we want to best represent what the atmosphere is doing. At the same time, you know, we're there to basically help underwriters make good decisions. The underwriter just wants to know that the view of risk that we're presenting is the best view of risk of the climate now. And we always go, well, we think it's good, but... And then we've got the regulators going, well, what's happening in 15, 30 years' time? And you're stuck in the middle because, you know, where's your attention? Where does your focus lie? So you've got to be very careful about sort of, you know, how you sort of do your time. I think it's the way you use and interpret the cat model information and the education behind it, obviously. We do have
0: some regulators in the room before you answer this question. How do you feel about the questions that are being asked to the regulators? So I think it's really good that they're asking the questions. And we've had the gists and the seabees
3: and everyone coming out and challenging what we're doing. But I think there needs to be a lot more collaboration. There's people asking questions with, you know, what happens with these variables or what happens with, you know, over here, you've got the sort of the modelling firms doing something. I think everyone just needs to get together, understand what it is we can do and we can provide in our day job, especially sort of in underwriting insurance, reinsurance versus the questions that they're asking. I think that's really, really important because we don't want to spend too much time basically scratching our heads, trying to come up with solutions that aren't necessarily relevant or useful to us or at you know, at the end of the day, back to the regulator. So I think, yeah, it's just more collaboration, more talk, more events like this would be ideal.
0: More events like this, do you hear that, everybody? If you want to sponsor one, have a <laughs> word to us. David, you threw sea bass in there, because i ought to confess, I've forgotten what the C stands for, Biennial exploratory scenarios. So it's a test that have been put out there or the way of looking at what the impact of sea <laughs> surface temperature is going to be in the future. But can you just remind me what the C stands for, please? I hope it's climate. Climate, is it <laughs> <Yeah>. climate? Yep, <laughs> I thought it might be, don't want to yeah. risk it. <laughs> David, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh, cheers. So um, Robert Porter, Ollie Wing, sorry, and Sue Parenberg and Alice Medley, please join me on stage. Alice Medley is our research analyst for climate, author of many of the reports we're putting out, and also author of the now biweekly climate newsletter.
4: So Rob, you are using both Reask and Fathom in Vave and Vave is being described as using science at the point of sale. Can you speak a bit about what you do and how you are applying science at the point of sale?
5: We like to describe ourselves as a data-driven MGA, and we're focused on U.S. property cat. The data-driven bit should be kind of fairly self-explanatory. The MGA bit just means that we're not taking the risk ourselves. We're writing on behalf of kind of third-party insurers. And, and our specialism is writing properties that are exposed to catastrophe risk in the U.S., um, particularly flood and hurricane, which is why we work with Reask and Fathom. And in the kind of line of business that we're working on, As I see it, there's historically been a couple of problems with kind of of how it's operated. And and the first of those is kind of embedding science at the point of underwriting. So it's cat-focused business. We should be using the best data available to kind of price that and understand our our risk. Uh, And because of some of the complexities and some of the historical issues with technology, that's not always happened. And the second piece really is around uh, data latency. So historically in the kind of delegated authority business, it can be difficult to get your price out to the customer. So someone trying to buy insurance on their property, and that may take a week, a few weeks. And then trying to understand if that policy has actually been bound uh, may take a few months for you to kind of learn that. What we've seen is that we can try and use technology to try and tackle those, some of those problems. And so we've built ourselves a kind of cloud-based pricing ecosystem You can make an API call into that and you'll get a price back within a couple of seconds and that will be bindable at that point. So every risk that we write, we know exactly where it is to a rooftop level. We work with Fathom, we work with Riast to bring in data that's kind of a 10 meter resolution for flood maps we're working with. And the idea is that we shouldn't ever be writing something which later on we're going to kind of regret. It should be that we know the price we want to charge at the point of sale and that's what we're going to charge.
4: So the focus of the event tonight is cyclones and floods. So how should we be thinking about the connection between these two perils?
5: So the majority of our book is kind of either homeowners' policies or flood policies. So the homeowners' policies are really mostly affected by wind and the the flood policies are standalone flood policies. And historically, the way that in a cat modelling world, the way that you kind of think about those is two independent perils. And really, we've seen from kind of recent events, that's actually not a very good assumption to make because you're looking at something like Hurricane Ida. It had really severe wind damage on the coast in Louisiana. And then 2,000 kilometers away in the northeast, uh, in New Jersey, you had really severe flood losses. Now, historically, we think of those as independent, but actually, clearly, there's a correlation there between kind of the perils, so between hurricane and flood, but also between two really distinct regions as well. And that really challenges kind of the assumptions that insurers are making around kind of what reinsurance they're purchasing, but also kind of have they got enough capital to kind of support and what they're doing as well. So I'm really excited to kind of hear about the the link between Reask and Fathom because hopefully they can kind of start to solve some of these issues that we're we're seeing around kind of correlation between, between different events.
4: So Rob, you started your career back in 2010. What have you seen change in this climate risk space in that time?
5: So the market is still relatively dominated by kind of the cat modeling market is relatively dominated by two providers, but I think there are many things which are kind of uh, very different from the early days. And when I started, I was kind of really surprised that no one really knew how to price for flood or had any idea about kind of what their level of aggregation around around flood risk was. And you could probably say the same about wildfire as well. Building level pricing was really kind of anathema to the industry at the, when I started. So like. We're at the point now where we, we've actually got a lot more intel about the risk that we're writing to the point where for any risk that we write, we'll have maybe three views on kind of what the roof's made out of, what we get from the insured, plus also from a couple of different sources. The final thing is climate changes, which I think really in the last kind of five years has really, really taken off.
4: Ollie, over to you. We've had a little bit about Fathom already from Andy, but when you model climate, how are you thinking about the nearer term impacts versus the longer term impacts?
6: Yeah, it's, it's a, a very interesting and potentially misunderstood part of the whole climate angle is actually what, what the people in this room care about, right? You know, we know the earth is warming and how are our catastrophes likely to change because of that. But in the near term, that signal is pretty small compared to natural variability. That's the thing that's going to drive losses next year and probably for the next couple of decades really you know you really start to see that forced response emerge in the latter half of this century uh, which to some extent is of questionable relevance to to many of the people in this room you know maybe if you're you know a a lender and you're giving out mortgages you're interested in that long-term view some of your business decisions as insurers and reinsurers interested in this long-term view but it's it's variability that drives those losses So anyone that has spoken to me in the past month knows that all I talk about at the moment is my dog, a little puppy called Jasper, and he's a really good example of climate versus natural variability. When I take him for a walk around the park, if you think the route back to my house, that's the kind of long-term climate trend that I'm walking on my own. But as soon as I leave the house, he's off, up to the park, and he's the kind of variability, right? Even though the climate's only changed a little bit, you're looking at me, I don't know where Jasper is at any point in time. He might be ahead of me, he might be behind me, but he might be with me. And essentially that's, you know, what we're interested in is where Jasper is, right? If you press pause, I'm very predictable. I move at a very steady, consistent pace. That's the warming trend. What's gonna happen next year or in five years time? We wanna know where Jasper is. Maybe there's a dog over there. It could be way off out the other side of the park. You know, that could be the equivalent of a volcano going off and the climate actually cooling. It could be the consequence of, you know, a phase of El Niño or the North Atlantic Oscillation. That's what's driving the losses. And so even the newest tools right now are really only starting to identify where I am on my walk, and they have no clue where Jasper is. And so one of the big things that we're hoping to address with REAS is, at least in the short term, start to try and nail down that natural variability component. There's a very exciting thing that REAS do, which is seasonal forecasting, right? If we understand the phase of these big oceanic and atmospheric circulation systems, we can start to augment the CAP models to be more reflective of those climatic conditions. And you can make business decisions based on the annual relevance of what's going on. We're only really scratching the surface of hammer down that natural variability.
0: I was going to say, Ali, that you could name your dog after Hurricane, but I'm thinking it
6: sounds more <laughs> like a Tornado, Tornado Jasper. Coming soon. <laughs> well, if you want his Instagram handle, talk to me uh, <laughs> after the show. He's actually named after Jasper National Park.
0: Um, Rob, I just want to come back to a little bit of what Ollie said, and then the point you made about building level analytics, and absolutely right, I mean, it's only really in the last very few years that people have really been able to use models, that kind of level of precision, but this variability in there, and Ollie's dog charging around, as you're pricing through Vave, are you trying to kind of reflect that in your pricing, so that somebody buying a property in the US through your agent's portal has to pay a different price on Monday than they do on Tuesday, or I mean, how do you manage all of that?
5: We need to kind of have some level of outward kind of um, stability in terms of our pricing and things like that. But obviously, we need to balance that against trying to kind of price off the the best understanding of the view of risk at any one moment. So we do things like we monitor our aggregates on a daily basis and we'll push prices in certain areas to make sure that we've got kind of a good spread and that that we're well optimized and things like that. In terms of kind of the seasonal variation, I think there's a couple of kind of things which make that more challenging. And so I guess one is the lead time with some of the seasonal forecasts in that you know, we're writing business kind of throughout the year and the lead time for kind of accurate seasonal forecasts for hurricane, you may only really get that kind of in May or June time kind of thing. And actually, we've kind of read most of our business by then for the hurricane season kind of thing. So it can be of limited use. But there is definitely benefit, I think, there. And a kind of a reinsurance purchasing kind of side of things as well. So you, you can probably get some idea about looking to kind of make sure that we're reflecting what we think will happen over the next five years with, with the climate as well and with kind of some of the longer-term variability as well.
4: Ollie, this variability that we've mentioned, in terms of how you model flood, what does this mean for how you can help insurers?
6: Well, uh, as I mentioned, the, the seasonal forecasting piece is very interesting because you can start to constrain the mode of variability that is of relevance to you. And as Rob says, there are kind of longer-term business decisions where you're more interested in that, that average. And there are some hazards that are much more interested in, you know, where I am on that walk in the park rather than where Jasper is. You know, the the sea level rise component is not shifting at all really with variability. That's much more predictable as a function of my very average walk in the park, the average climate change. But some of those more acute perils, hurricanes are one example, and really any other flood generating system are much more responsive to the variability within that given year. So at the minute, even the newest tools are really focusing on the forced climate response, so those average changes. But that's really why this this Re-Ask and Fathom partnership has, has come together, because, you know, we're, we're catastrophe risk modelers, right? Who cares about averages? We're interested in extremes. So we want to really understand how variability can drive those annual losses.
4: So, Sue, over to you. You work with quite a lot of different insurers. What other issues are you seeing that are impacting how they think about climate
7: Yeah, I suppose the things that I'm seeing and when you look at climate, you've got to think about not only the side that we've got here with the flood models and the cyclones, you've also got to think what other bits of climate is being affected. You've got to think about the wildfires and things like that as well, because that's also very much the focus. And in order to be able to manage those risks, you've got to think about the exposure that you've got behind those. So working with a direct insurer, they're going to be thinking about far more granular data. Then you've got the binders you know, and how they're going to get their data. How are you going to look at it on a digital basis? And a reinsurer, how are they going to see it? Because after a reinsurer is going to have a completely less skin, in, you know, they're not going to be able to access that data. They can't decide on the data quality necessarily. They're, they get what they're given most of the time. So you have those different aspects and how you're going to manage that data, how you're going to manage your risk, how do you look at also the inflationary impacts, but you've also got to be able to look at how, you know, we want to profit, that's the underlying thing, how are you going to get there, but what data are you going to get, what resolution of data?
4: So on that exposure point, Oli, how do you consider that at Fathom?
6: Yeah, I mean... Really, we should be spending the majority of tonight talking about that if we were wanting to reflect the true contribution to risk that we're seeing today and we have seen through history. We've done a bit of research into this uh, in some papers, globally as well as in the States. And no matter which way you look at it, changes in exposure completely dominate changing risk. And so that is the key element to understand. We had a paper out, it's very good timing, only last week actually, that looked at urban footprints through time based on satellite data. And since the mid-80s, we see twice as many urban areas within floodplains globally now than we did back then. You know, that's an extraordinary signal. Hazard is changing, you know, it's very uncertain. Well, here's something extremely certain, right? That we're continuing to develop in hazard's way, no matter whether it's going up or down or whether it's hard to predict. And indeed, when we project this out into the future as well, if you have kind of socioeconomic projections of change, we again see that complete dominance of exposure over hazard so there's definitely a rebalancing of the discussion to be had there if you're interested only in your present day book and of course you know changing exposure is less relevant but if you're thinking about the kinds of properties you're going to be insuring in 10 20 30 years time then you know those could be in in more hazardous areas than your current exposures and you need to account for that and you need to be thinking about how all of these new things that you might be insuring are extremely hazardous to be insuring.
0: Sue, Ollie, Rob thank you very much. Thank you. you. So, Paul, we're going to start with you first of all. So, you're a partner at Securus. Securus is one of the larger uh, investors in insurance linked securities and other capital market assets. Uh, For those that aren't familiar with what an investor in ILS does, can you just explain for those in the audience?
8: What Securus does is we provide a mechanism for an end investor, so that's a big pension fund or a uh, family office to invest directly in insurance or underwriting risk so they can take on that risk directly rather than having to invest in say an insurance company where they're taking on credit risk they're taking on operational risk those kind of things so it's a it's a route to that direct underwriting risk for an end investor.
0: Thank you and and this is very worth a couple more words so one is we sort of hear a little bit about capital markets coming into insurance across all levels and not just catastrophe but that's to a certain extent where Started and also, Paul, we heard from David how he helps Brit with understanding the output from the models. And your role is, I hesitate to say, similar, but in a sense, you are there to help the organization understand how to take modeled output and apply again your own view of risk. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means in, in practice?
8: Sure, and, and in some sense, listening to David talk, it was there are a lot of parallels in the work that I do at SCURIS in terms of defining our own view of risk, making sure that we you know, make decisions consistently against that view of risk. I guess some of the challenges are slightly different. Because Securus is quite a small organisation, we want to be quite small, we remain quite nimble. We don't want to get involved in that sort of exposure modelling piece of the work where we're actually taking property characteristics and running them through a cap model. We want to work with counterparties and students who are doing that work well and then working with them to take on, a to take on that risk. That poses some challenges because when we're making investment decisions, we need to make sure that we own those decisions ourselves and we're not being unduly influenced or biased by the decisions a counterparty or a has made. So that requires quite a lot of work to, to be able to level set between investment types. So if somebody comes along and say a retrocession investment or a reinsurance investment or a cat bond or a quota share, they may have chosen to use one model vendor versus a different model vendor. How do we level that playing field to making sure that we're making all of those investment decisions on a consistent basis? That's one of the really big challenges that my role at Securus undertakes. It's making sure that we can actually always make all of our investment decisions fairly and consistently across a multitude of different investment types.
4: And um, So Paul, there are a lot of climate related events happening all the time. So we've had Hurricane Ian recently, for example. How often do you need to update your investors?
8: That's a big part of the job. We're going to be taking subscriptions, redemptions all the time. So there's obviously timeframes around that. But we need to be able to value the fund at any point in time. That's one of the critical characteristics. So a robust event response process, a robust valuation process, so that when an event like Ian happens, we can respond very quickly and we can establish a, a fair value to the fund. Basically, in probably within a few days of that event happening is a critical part of the work that we have to do. So there is that real time pressure around making sure that as an event is happening, you're communicating with your investors straight away as the event's forming, and then also in the days of following, making sure that they, they understand the value of their assets.
4: And a lot of the investments you hold are over multiple years. So how does this impact how you think about climate risk?
8: It's so that's a quite an interesting question. I, and I kind of get that impression from a lot of times when I talk about the work we do, is that people think about cat bonds as being a multi-year investment. But actually, in the truth is that cat bonds are probably the most liquid asset that what sort of invests in. Many of the assets we take for like a, a reinsurance contract or a credit share deal is going to be that sort of standard annual investment that the most reinsurance contracts work on. But a cap bond is a traded asset, so we can buy and sell these. So there is that opportunity to use information differently around those kind of investments because you can reposition the fund. You can sell cap bonds if you think you have a different view of the upcoming hurricane season. You can take on more and purchase more. That's a it's a very different type of investment, and we do think about it in terms of it being a liquid asset that we can reposition the sort of during the course of even during the course of the harping season.
0: On the liquidity, so for those who are not familiar with investment terms, it basically means as you explained, you can sell it. I'm a bit out of date with what's happening in the sort of secondary market, the people who are buying that. But can you give a sense of scale about when you say it is the most liquid market? Is there, is there a strong appetite of buyers out there and people are actually now actively trading in that market?
8: You're absolutely right. It's not a completely liquid market. You can't just buy and sell all the time. There has to be demand. But it certainly is something that we do. We have an active presence in the secondary market. That's not every ILS firm will do the same thing. Some will do more of a buy and hold strategy. But there are a significant number of parties now who are sort of fairly active in that secondary market. Pre-event, pre-landfall of the storm, there will be active trades going on. And then, again, followings.
4: And when we're thinking about evaluating future climate risks, so let's say in the next 10 years, for example, where do you think we currently stand in terms of the models and tools that are available?
8: Again, a good question. The landscape has changed significantly in the last few years, I'd say. Most of the sort of big commercial vendors that we work with are now providing these sort of climate condition catalogs and those kind of things. One of the challenges to that that we've been really focused on at Scuris is making sure that our technology stack is capable to kind of respond to this sort of changing landscape of risk. It shouldn't cost us a lot of time in terms of analyst capacity or time frame to reprice every investment every time we want to update a new view of risk. So when we think about climate analytics and climate change and its impact on catastrophe risk, we are really focused on making sure that we have a framework in which we can have a much more dynamic view of risk, that it's much more responsive to a changing view of risk, much more responsive to things like climate change, and that we can explore the sensitivity of our portfolio to these kind of tools that are being provided much more rapidly and much more easily.
0: That's a much more diplomatic answer than you gave me on the phone, Paul. (laughs) Thanks, Ali. Thomas, just a question for you. So when you founded Reask for your globally connected cyclone modeling or also known as modeling everywhere, one of the things you're looking at was this impact of climate. We've talked a bit before about this variability and the challenges of like different timescales. Paul's talked a bit about it. How, how do you think about that in both building your models and also, again, advising your clients about how to use the information or the uncertainty in the external environment within the models?
9: One of the main reasons we started reask is essentially to bring more climate physics in, in the cat modeling process. Um, so this means that when we build a view of risk, we always start from a description of the climate of some sort. So think about a you know, global picture of what the ocean temperatures are, the patterns of wind and sea level pressure and the like. And then from that, consistently with that, we derive so-called stochastic event sets or synthetic event sets that give a view of the risk under that climate. So this gives us a tool where we can look at different climate as inputs. We can look at the climate that is good representation of the, the recent history. That will give us what we'll call a, a current view or baseline view. We can use projection of what we think the climate might do in the next few months. This will give us a seasonal view of the risk, or we can do this sort of longer uh, time, so 2035 or the likes to to get a future climate view. But being able to split in different ways is very important. That's in particular for the discussion we're having is the, the seasonal view, so the Jasper walk around the park, right? This is where we have a tool that allows us to to look at the climate condition at the beginning of June, see that there's a strong tendency for La Nina to form and use our model to translate that into a hurricane risk or a shift in hurricane risk.
0: And there's a lot of responsibility when you're providing those numbers to insurance organizations. We've heard obviously from Paul and David where they've got their own research team, built models themselves. But how do you give your clients confidence that the decisions you're making or the advice you're giving them is the best representation of science and isn't being too biased by one particular view. So when they actually use the models, they understand what data sources you've got. We talked a bit about uncertainty, but how how do you help them balance between the the advice you're offering and at the point at which they have to make decisions themselves? I think the physics is the
9: key here. So because the way we've built the model, they react to physics, physical trend. So if your ocean temperature in the Gulf is warmer, It's natural to expect hurricanes that will intensify more. We can show through history, back testing and show that last 10 years of seasonal forecasting, uh, the model would have done well and would have predicted the sort of shift that we observed. Kind of builds the confidence in what the model is doing. It is reacting to physical trends. That's one thing. And the second level in terms of uncertainty is that we're providing a full even set every time. So we're not trying to predict what's going to happen this season, we're providing a whole stochastic event set that is reflective of what should happen as a whole under those conditions.
8: Maybe I could just add a little bit there, because we've gone through this process of of working with Thomas and his team in terms of implementing these, basically a seasonal forecast and an in-season approach to monitoring hurricane risk, because as we're making decisions during the course of the hurricane season, whatever those decisions happen to be around the fund and the portfolio. We're using Thomas's work to, to support that decision making. And it was a process. It was a considerable amount of time to understand the sensitivity, understand, do the back testing work. And really, the key there was that we were working with a partner who was completely transparent about the whole process. It wasn't about just licensing an off the shelf product, which was take it or leave it. It was, right, let's work together to really understand the skill in this and how, where we can make confident decisions and where we shouldn't be making decisions necessarily because we don't have the confidence in those numbers. So it was really a collaborative approach.
4: Uh, so Thomas, in terms of the users of your models, do they need to have a PhD in climate science to understand the outputs or is it more accessible than that?
9: You don't need any extra expertise as a user of a GAT model, that we be my view. But I guess it comes back to uh, what we were talking about before and understanding more and more climate viability, and I guess the more you understand, the more you get out of our products. So you do not need any extra expertise, but if you put more effort, you'll get more out of the data.
0: That's the key here. Question, I guess, for both of you. In terms of, like, a consensus among practitioners, so you've got the RIAS view, Paul has the Securus view, David has the BRIP view. You said almost anybody can use the models, I mean, you probably need to be still quite smart to use them. But is there, is there a kind of group there that is, that is also supporting what you're doing and you can share ideas with to say, like, is, is, is there a consensus around this or is, is it still very much less collaboration in each entity, whether it's building tools or running them, having to work it out for themselves?
8: Well, I've seen increasingly over the last five years or so, particularly since I moved to working with Securus, I, I see that there is a sort of split between like all the transactional view and sometimes we refer to it as the market view internally at Securus, this is how the market will present a risk to somebody like Securus, and that's often led by the brokers and how they choose the settings and probably on the big main commercial catastrophe model vendors. And then there is the Securus view, which we, as we call it internally, which is our internal view of risk and our internal view of pricing, and, and that's much more dynamic, that varies more frequently. The transactional view is much more stable and static. And we really do think of it in terms of those two views, so it's market transactional view, which is, I guess, the sort of static view of, of how the capitalists have traditionally been so successful because they have been able to buy that common framework and that common language of risk and how they're a consistent view of, the, of pricing. And then there is an internal view, which is your scientifically purest view. And that's really been supported by a community of people like the new boutique, smaller vendors who allow you to sort of really explore that space a lot more in a lot more detail than we've ever been able to do before.
0: Then Thomas, just one for you in terms of Hurricane Ian. So we've had Hurricane Ian, very large number, I'm not quite sure where it's settled at, but somewhere between, I guess, 70 and 90 billion dollars. For somebody who is looking at that, and there's been no hurricanes this year, they might ask the question does that mean you change your view of the risk, and you change the model, because no hurricane is something now, a very big one, does that influence how you think about characterising the models?
9: No, it doesn't, and that's one of the main reasons we want to build a model built on physics, right? So the, if you build a model based on historical statistics, then historical records, you've got Hurricane Ian coming in, then you need to change your rates, at least in the region. If you build a model based on physics, then in a way there was nothing too surprising about Hurricane Ian. Like we have a current long-term view that would put it in a certain written period. But even more importantly, if you look at the condition this year, and the ocean temperature and the wind shear, this year, then it becomes an event that is not surprising at all.
0: And I think, Paul, for you, similar story.
8: Yeah, and, some, and I would agree on a lot of things that Thomas has said, like hurricane Ian shouldn't have surprised anybody. Surge risk on the west coast of Florida, a known factor. Racket intensification is something that we've seen pretty frequently in the last few years, and I think we're getting a better understanding of that. But that is obviously still a big topic of conversation. So from a sort of meteorological hazard perspective, I don't think Ian should really be seen as a surprise. Um, it wasn't even a particularly unusual track in some sense whenever Charlie being the famous example the previous storm making landfall at the same location Ian will however change our view of risk it will absolutely influence how we view the litigation environment in Florida and how this plays out over the next year plus we have been very conservative in our view of Florida hurricane risk on the basis of what we saw and the and the impacts after Irma and after Michael and, and the impacts we saw and how litigation played a role in those ultimate losses, if watching what happens with Ian in terms of those impacts will fundamentally change how we view Florida hurricane risk going forward.
0: Yeah, I mean I've heard some incredible statistics about the numbers being paid out over the last five years or so or in terms of litigation. Can you just, just bring that to life? What would be an example for some people that aren't so familiar with that about how litigation is impacting the costs of a hurricane?
8: If, if through the, the attorney fees are think, be the biggest impact and that, that the size of the claims when you get a lawyer involved are just amplified by all of the magnitude sometimes and that's an additional cost which needs to be, you know, there have been significant reforms in the Florida market which I'm sure there are other people in the room who could speak much more knowledgeably about them than myself but understanding how far and how well those reforms are going to curb that effect is, is the most important thing we'll learn from Ian.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of many years of being in that space, there's always some surprise or something changing, and that seems to be like the one that people have got to watch out for. And I think we'll hold any questions until the afterwards, so I just want to say, Thomas, Paul, thank you very much. Ali, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Right, Robin, to bring us to a close, sir. over to you.
10: Dickie. Dickie Whitaker who's... Is- Dicky is the founder and a CEO of
11: Oasis Loss Modeling Framework. Can I just say, by the way, yeah. it, it's fantastic to have a chat with you here. The the sort of Louis Theroux of Insta, it's brilliant. Thank you. Getting to the bottom of everything. You haven't even started. Yeah, no, yet. absolutely. Yeah. Don't wrap yet, though. I yeah, think no. that's your thing.
10: So, <laughs> those who don't know, Oasis is, and this is this is taken from your website, the loss modeling framework providing an open source platform, developing, deploying, and executing catastrophe models. It uses a full simulation engine and makes no restrictions on the modeling approach. So I call that an open source CAT model platform. That's good enough. That's good. Who's on the platform? What kind of companies, what kind of models represent the kind of community?
11: Well, I think there's about 20 companies and there's about over 100 models. And they range from a sort of one end of the spectrum. We've got academics, so people like... Adam Sobel at Columbia and some people at the Potsdam Institute in Germany, for example. So you've got that type of people. And then through to you know companies even today like Fathom and JBA and CoreLogic and specialist companies that have set up mostly in the last 10 years to try and service the needs of the insurance industry and beyond. Because you know let's not forget, perhaps in case we do, that there are people like governments that use these tools as well. So it's quite a wide range between... You know, and there's some insurance companies actually like Swiss AXA, that have models there too. So a big range. I think that gives you
10: a kind of good view of how climate science is represented in those models. What are you seeing sort of collectively across all of those frameworks in terms of trends
11: and issues that you think the insurance industry should be aware of? There is a difference I suppose between the more established you are as an organization in this space probably the slower you can move the younger you are the more nimble you can be so in some some ways there's a correlation between you know and that there are there are you know people like fathom and jba and and many others out there that i think have been leading on the incorporation of climate change into these models which you know my report card across the whole industry might be could do better but that's part of the function we have, is to accelerate innovation, from, particularly from academia, actually, and I think.
10: What are the areas that you think might require a bit of attention? How do we get from where we are to being something that you would, do your report card would look a bit
11: more like an eight? The biggest issues facing the uncertainty of count modelling in the insurance industry aren't actually about climate change, really there are bigger drivers of stuff that's going on. So one of the things we want to see is a completely holistic approach that's going to answer all of the questions that includes exposure, that includes inflation and everything else we've been talking about. But it's sort of like, you can't have credibility, I think, unless you're doing the climate change thing really right. And that means you've got to take the knowledge of the climate science over the last 10 to 15 years, the changing climate in the last 10 to 15 years, and ensure that that is fully representative of however you build your model. Now, if you're using a more of a historical basis, you've got to change history to represent the last 15 years and you've got to skew the information we have then to, to cut across that 60, 70 year period if you've got that longer time. So that's the one thing that we've, we've moved to slowly, uh, I would say, incorporated with this holistic view would give us an eight, maybe.
10: Where do you think the big opportunities are? In other words, where, where are there are obvious gaps in the model. And if you were a sort of young entrepreneur and you were an academic at Bristol, what would you direct people towards now in order to make lots of money?
11: It's tough, because actually, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that you can see from people people like the, the guys we've heard from, from Fathom is there's no shortcut no. between coming from academia and going, hey, I can build cat models, right? It's actually really hard and it takes a bit of time. And you've got to really understand the questions and the needs of the insurance industry. If you prepare to focus on that, then I think there's a good marketplace. If you talk to the, the firms, the, you know some of whom we've heard today and others, you know the marketplace is banking, it is the corporates. And in fact, I'd put money on the fact the biggest buyers of these products in five years' time will be the corporates. And the insurance industry will be part of a changing distribution pattern in the industry. And we have to be careful because that change could both offer opportunities, but also risks. I feel like that's a 2023 event,
10: because I share that view. I think it's going to be really interesting. What was the name of the dog in the park? Jasper. Jasper. Hashtag Jasper in the park. I want to talk to you about Jasper in the park. We can't escape from the, uh, and it's been well articulated today, that the kind of the levels of uncertainty inherent in parts of the model Um, How how do you advise
11: people to deal with that? I mean, it's inherent, like weather forecasting or being an economist. I think it's a couple of things. So one, humans are not good at uncertainty. We try and reduce it at every possible opportunity. We don't like it, it doesn't fit with sort of the the genesis of humans anyway. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this has been touched upon today, trust is one of the greatest uh, ways to deal with the issue of uncertainty. If If you're having these models explained, by uh, significantly the people who have involved in building them, you're going to get a level of trust which will slightly get over the uncertainty. I think the thing that we're really missing right now is actually that may be fine for you know, Paul and his team, who have spent his career building these models. But when you get to, and I'm not talking about security particularly here, but any sort of underwriting entity, for example, you end up with an underwriter who goes, I don't get that, you you may trust these models, I don't because I don't understand them. And actually there's a really cool thing we're doing with Riask at the moment and some professors at LSE who are experts in, in decision theory. And decision theory is the science behind dealing with uncertainty. So what we're doing is we're taking some work that's been done by RIAS to expose even more elements of the uncertainty actually than they generally do because this is a really complex project. And then we're using these uh, with the assistance of these guys from LSE. We're hoping to be able to create something that an underwriting can, can take this information, and say, now I've got confidence bounds around elements of this count model, I am going to make a different underwriting decision, and I think that's the sort of holy grail, if you like, of, of underwriting.
10: Someone said to me at lunchtime today, if you want to sell technology, then you need trust and relevance. Well, I thought that was a really good expression. Are you still open for models? What do they, people have to do? You're open source.
11: Someone's got a model. What, do they come and talk to you? Well, there's there's two ways of doing it. I mean, we have people in Taiwan and the US and other parts of the world that just download our software, they use it, they don't have to talk to us. I hear it anecdotally, which is okay. If people really want to get their models you know, into a sort of level of fidelity that's going to be right up there with some of the people we've heard from today, then I usually suggest we have a conversation about it just because we can sort of help make sure they realize the hurdle they have to get over to produce something that really makes sense. And we get lots of startups in California, in particular, that sort of come to us and go, hey, we just raised, you know, eight million in our seed round, and we're coming to the insurance industry, you know, we're gonna do, we've got, I mean, you wouldn't believe the phrases they come up with. And then you oh, realize, we would. no idea, no idea at all, right? Yeah. And so they just usually go away and never come back. Because, you know, not that I don't want them back, but it's just that if they're not prepared, they'll die. Yeah. And that's a waste of time. So the answer is all of those things. We help people a lot, you know, we're doing new stuff on cyber models and renewable right now, some really interesting things. We put quite a lot of effort into making sure they really work. You know, we curate these data standards, exposure data standards, which sit underneath everything, and that sort of helps with all this stuff. So we can help there, but we don't have that much resource, so sometimes we have to push back if they're too ignorant. Can I talk to you very quickly about APIs? I mean, is the industry getting better at APIs, or is it still a hard ask? Well, clearly it's the the only way you want to operate any type of technology like that, so we're certainly right up there. I I would say it depends what region you're in and type of company you're in. It's poor, really. It's not great.
10: Last question, any asks to the audience in terms of help you need or we've got a big community of people who are interested in what you do.
11: So I think the most important thing, I mean, everything, I've, everything I'm trying to do with Oasis and a few other things is about collaboration to solve problems that can't be solved any other way. The only way it works is if people actually join that collaboration, use the standards, have a conversation, join some of our events that we do. Or the latest thing that we're doing with Fathom and a bunch of lots of other people too is starting a new journal, an open free journal on catastrophe, risk and resilience. So join the party, otherwise get left at the station and it won't be, won't be so good. It's fun too. Dickie, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very
10: much. much. The bar is open until at least 8 o'clock. Thank you very much to Father and Rias.
4: Hi, I'm Tara, one of the research analysts at INSTEC. Our latest article, Closing the SME Cyber Insurance Protection Gap Through Cross-Industry Collaboration, is now available. If you are interested in SME development, cyber under insurance and how insurers can reduce the protection gap this one's for you it's now available on the instec website let me know what you think
6: well thank
0: you for hanging out to the end for more information about membership and how we can help you find your business partners and learn what is really going on in the world of insurance and risk management take a look at www.instec.co or contact us by linkedin or hello at instec.co that's it. What